Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online services. We are about to close out chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, and we're very excited about that. But before, before we get to our passage today, I want to uh, show you how a modern-day insult actually connects very well with the main idea of our passage today. See, one of the worst things that you can say to a man is to call him a bandwagon fan. A bandwagon fan. Now, sadly, there are some in our congregation who have actually used that term against me. I know it's hard to imagine. Now, I'm not going to say their names, but I will tell you their initials. Their initials are Leonardo Galvin, Randy Osti, Dan Oh. Okay, so that was their names. That's my fault. Okay, but oops, get over it. Now, what does a bandwagon fan mean? And I'll, I'll be fair and say the insult actually does fit very well because the truth of the matter is they're right. I am a bandwagon fan. See, here's what a bandwagon fan is. A bandwagon fan is somebody who doesn't uh, align themselves with a team because of some past loyalty, but rather because presently the team is winning. And they're the popular choice. And they say, hey, hey, I want to be a part of the in crowd. I want to be, I want to fit in. I want, I want to be on the winning side. And to be honest, this is exactly how it works when it comes to one of my fanships, if you will. See, now most of my fanships, most of the teams I root for, they're connected to where I grew up or where I used to live. Or, or maybe they were one of my dad's teams. So I kind of inherited that fanship. But there's one team that I root for. The NFL team that I root for, I never lived in that area. My dad was never a fan of that team. What happened is my favorite college football coach became the head coach at that team. See, if I'm going to watch an NFL game, and I'm not a big NFL fan, I think I've honestly watched one game this entire season. But if I'm going to watch a team, I'm going to watch the Seattle Seahawks. Now, it's true that, again, I've never lived in Seattle. My dad was not a Seattle fan. You see, but here's what happened. My favorite coach became their head coach, and then just so happened, when I really started following them, it happened to be the year that they were the popular pick to win the Super Bowl, and then they won the Super Bowl. So by coincidence, <laughs> that's when I became a fan. Now, I've had friends call me a bandwagon fan, and it's true because I am. I totally am. And they've asked me, well, what happens when Pete Carroll is no longer the coach? What happens when they stop winning? Well, if I'm honest, I'll stop caring. I'll stop cheering. Because my loyalty is really about the moment. It's really an emotional decision. It's really about joining in the excitement. I've joined, I've jumped on the bandwagon, if you will. The emotion of it, wanting to fit in, getting with the popular choice to win, right? I've joined the bandwagon, I've jumped on, the band's playing the Victor song, and I'm excited about it. You know, kind of like a lot of the Golden State Warrior fans in our area. Ouch, right? I had to give a little bit of dig because I'm kind of humiliating myself as well. You see, but the answer to that question of, Paul, are you going to remain loyal, is really, no, I'm not. See, because here's what happens with a bandwagon fan. They don't last the long term. They don't last the long haul. They don't make it all the way. Their fanship was ignited in a moment, and it will be put out in a moment. Now, here's the thing. Bandwagons happen for sports. They happen for politics. Sadly, they also happen for religion. And this is when it becomes incredibly dangerous. 
You see, a bandwagon fan in sports may be annoying. But a bandwagon fan in religion, that's incredibly unhealthy. The idea of believing something about God or believing something about Jesus simply because it's the popular choice, it's a choice that looks like it's winning so far, is not a good reason to follow Jesus because it's just too important. The religious decision that you make about Jesus is just too important to lean on popularity, to lean on emotion and not evidence. And this is what happens with bandwagon choices. Let me show you this in our passage today. This is John chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 40. John chapter 7, starting with verse 40. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus interact with a group of people. They're going to respond to Jesus' teaching. And what's going to happen is this bandwagon starting, uh, going to start to be built. And all these emotions are going to happen. And, and there's going to be this appeal to, hey, believe, believe what we believe. But the reasoning is going to be incredibly shallow. There's not going to be good evidence provided, good arguments provided. Rather, they're simply going to say, well, believe what we believe because we believe it. And we're the winning team. And we're the popular choice. They're going to use emotion, uh, appeal to majority. They're going to use misinformation. And this is not a good ground to make a religious decision. This is not a good ground to make the most important decision of your life. Let me show you this. In John chapter 7, we're going to start with verse 40. Jesus just taught in the temple. He's spoken kind of at this Feast of Tabernacles. So it's a really big celebration. We've been unpacking that in John 7. It's been good for us to kind of get that historical background. So right now, Jesus kind of just delivered kind of his last moment or his last speech during this festival time there at the temple. Jesus just made this large declaration that he is the one who will give the gift of the Spirit. He said that he will give the living water, which is a reference to the Spirit. He's going to pour out the Spirit on God's people. This is going to cause the forgiveness of sins. It's going to cause people to be radically transformed from the inside out. It's going to transform them, make them better followers of God. And then it's also going to bring in eternal and everlasting communion in their inner being with God. So Jesus has made a large promise. And in response to this, the crowd starts to make up their mind about Jesus. And what we're going to see is a bandwagon that's going to be built. An emotional appeal, not based on evidence, but this kind of emotional response. Some misinformation will lead to an irrational choice. Look at this. This is verse 40. When they heard these things, this crowd of people, some people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. So what's happening? Here's the response. Kind of groups kind of build, if you will. One group says, this is the prophet. Now, what is this group? We've actually heard this before already. We've seen in John when Jesus performs the miracle of feeding thousands of people, People see this miracle and they say to themselves, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. You see, in the Old Testament, Moses, the great leader who led the people out of Egypt and brought them all the way to the edge of the promised land, this great leader said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, right before he died, he told the people, God is going to raise up somebody like me. 
He's going to raise up another prophet. You need to be on the watch for him. God is going to do this move. So they've been waiting for a prophet like Moses for hundreds of years. So when they see a miracle that Moses performed or something like it, they say this must be it. You see, because Moses, of course, by the power of God given to him, was a part of a miracle where millions of people were fed miraculously. So the crowd sees this kind of food miracle and they say to themselves, here we go. This is the prophet. Well, Jesus here has just spoken about how he's the one who's going to give living water. Well, this is just like another miracle that Moses performed. You see, on two occasions when the people were incredibly thirsty, as they're journeying through the wilderness, they're journeying through this kind of desert wasteland, they're thirsty. They have this this problem of water. And twice, Moses is used, again, the power of God enabling him to do it, He's used to make water come from a rock, miraculously to burst forth for the people. This happens on two occasions. So again, Jesus has already provided manna, or he's already provided for them. Uh, Moses was providing the manna, but here Jesus, or just a couple chapters before, provides them food. He multiplies fish and loaves. So they see that and they think, hey, another food miracle. And now Jesus is promising water. This looks like Moses, this looks like the guy we've been waiting for. Maybe he's the prophet. Now another group responds, and they take a step forward from that. No, Jesus is not just the prophet. It says in verse 41, this is the Christ. Now who is this? Now these are two separate figures in Jewish thinking. They didn't kind of slam these figures uh, together. In Christianity, looking back, of course, at the Old Testament from the lens of Jesus, we would say, no, these are both uh, uh, describing one person here. But that was not Jewish thought at the time. Now, the Christ is even higher than the prophet. See, the Christ would be the promised king, the king that would come to reign over God's people. He would establish God's kingdom. This is who they say now he is. This is the Christ. This is the king we've been waiting for. Not just the prophet like Moses. No, but the great king we've been waiting for. He will establish God's kingdom. So, so far, so good. They're seeing some evidence from Jesus. They see his miracles. They hear his teaching. So they're starting to build an opinion. We could say that this is kind of a good bandwagon, if you will. But then enters in the third group. This is the bad, bad wagon. The bad, bad wagon. And if I didn't mention it, the big idea for this morning, again, is this, is that bad or belief bandwagons are bad. Belief bandwagons are bad. And we're going to see this one built right here. So again, if you're only going to write down one thing, write down that big idea. Belief bandwagons are bad. And here's where we see this belief bandwagon formed. Again, it's going to be built off of misinformation. And you throw in some emotion. You deliver that to the masses and it's going to create hysteria. Right? Look, look at this in verse 42. Sorry, halfway through verse 41. But some said, wait, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem the village where David was? Now, to answer their question, the answer is yes. They're spot on. They're perfectly right. Yes, the the Messiah, the king, this Old Testament hero that they've been waiting for, he would come from the offspring of David. 
he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. They're right. The problem is they're also wrong. You see, because when they look at Jesus, they say to themselves, wait, this man's from Galilee. So he doesn't match the, the profile. He, he, is, he doesn't stack up to our expectations. We know the scriptures. He's supposed to come from the family tree of David. He's supposed to come from the city of Bethlehem. And this guy is from Galilee. Now, so their opinion is based off of misinformation because Jesus is not from Galilee. Or at least he was not born in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. And he is a descendant of David. So they have bad information. And what happens? You put some bad information together. You mix that up with some emotion. You deliver that to the masses. And what happens? Bad things happen. Belief bandwagons are bad. Look at their response. They, based on this misinformation and maybe part of the kind of hysteria of the crowd that's starting to build, look at verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. What's happening? Their emotions have overtaken them now. Based on misinformation, they say, this guy can't be the Christ. There's no way. Instead of investigating the claims of Jesus, maybe taking a, a more rational approach to this, instead of looking for more information, they decide, nope, it's time to make an arrest. Again, you can see a bandwagon is not built very well. It's not built on evidence. It's not built on good arguments. It's built on emotion. It's built on misinformation. It's not sturdy. That's why it doesn't last. That's why it should not be trusted. But this crowd, this group, builds their belief this way. Now, in the rest of the passage, we're going to see another primary example of a belief bandwagon. And we're going to see that it is very, very bad. We're going to see another group who kind of shares the opinion of that third group mentioned. That third group that said he's not the Christ. And they're making this claim based off of misinformation. Another group is going to kind of carry that same sentiment, that same perspective. And this group is going to be very unfair to anybody who disagrees with them. They're going to be the ones who are building the worst bandwagon, if you will. Because when they want people to believe what they believe, they're going to give no evidence. They're simply going to say, no, believe. Believe what we believe. Why? Well, because we believe it. Because we believe it. Because we're the popular crowd. Because we're the winning choice. And we'll see that this kind of weak argument that they have, no evidence, just emotion, misinformation, is then going to lead them to say, if you disagree with us, well, then we'll insult you. We'll, we'll call you a name. Again, we're talking about the identity of Jesus, the truth of who he is. And they're basing it on popularity. This is incredibly dangerous. Because it's not how truth is. Right? Truth is not found in a democratic way. We don't, we don't vote truth in. Right, truth stands on its own. And what you often find is that when you finally find truth, you're actually standing alone. Truth does not need us to support it. We find truth 
We are the ones who, who discover truth. We don't design truth. We don't create truth. Truth is there on its own. And yet these kind of religious leaders and group here are going to say, no, we determine what's true, and whatever is popular is the way to go. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. Look at this in verse 45. We're introduced to this group. It says, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. That's that group I'm talking about. The chief priests and the Pharisees. But this other group of people, the officers are coming to them. It says this, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to him, why did you not bring him? Now, who are these guys? Now, it's hard to remember, but if we go back to the passage we covered really last week, if you look up at verse 32 of John chapter 7. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. These are these officers. So officers were dispatched to arrest Jesus because the things that Jesus were saying were not okay with him. So they said, hey, it's time to quiet Jesus. Enough is enough. Jesus, we're done with you. This whole thing of being equal with God, we're not okay with that. That's blasphemous. Jesus, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to exit. And so they dispatched these officers. Well, apparently these officers were there when Jesus spoke about giving living water, giving the living water of the Spirit, pouring out God's Spirit upon God's people that would forgive them of their sins, transform them, and give them eternal communion with God. We unpacked that last week. And these officers come back empty-handed. Now, we don't see them give a report. They just kind of show up, and they're missing somebody. There's nobody there. Jesus isn't there. So the Pharisees and the chief priests say this. Why did you not bring him? Uh, You're missing something. We sent you out. We dispatched you to go after Jesus. Why didn't you come? Now, at first glance, we would think, okay, these officers, they're, they're probably like policemen, right? Or, or maybe they're even worse. We would say, well, maybe these guys are like mercenaries, right? Uh, they're just there. If you pay them enough, they'll do whatever brutal act you want them to do. Well, that'd be a bad way to read this passage. That's not who these men are. These officers, under the chief priests, would actually be very theologically informed men. These men were of the tribe of Levi. That's the priest tribe in the tribes of Israel. So these are theologically informed men. Yes, apparently they were able to make an arrest, but these aren't average, everyday kind of uh, mercenaries that just do things for money. No, these are highly religious men, and something stopped them. And it wasn't Jesus' force, right? Something else stopped them. So they're not willing to get on the Pharisees' bandwagon. They're not willing to say, well, yeah, we'll just trust your opinion about Jesus, and you're the guys with the authority, and you're the guys with kind of the, the, the popular vote. You are the guys that hold all the cards. They say, no, we're not joining you. Well, why is that? Why did they come back empty-handed? Look at verse 46. And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Why have you come empty-handed? Apparently, the crowd had made some, you know, kind of uh, unrest. It says there's division among them. Some wanted to arrest them 
but no one laid hands on them. So apparently the crowd was going in that direction, but they decided to stop. So you could say, well, maybe these officers feel that, wow, the crowd is really uneasy right now. We don't want to jump in and do anything, get our hands dirty, and cause a big mess. That's not what they say. They weren't nervous about kind of the emotional climate of the crowd. Why did they not arrest Jesus? Well, simply because he impressed them. It says, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, what did they hear? They haven't heard of all of that Jesus is taught in chapter 7. Remember, they're dispatched in verse 32. So by the time they get there, all that, all that we know that they've heard is what Jesus said about giving living water, which is a reference to pouring out God's Spirit. They heard Jesus say that their sins could be forgiven. That by the work of the Spirit, they could be transformed to be more obedient followers. They heard that, that, that Jesus would give them the Spirit, which would bring eternal communion with God forever in their inner being. They heard that and said, wow, we have never, never ever heard anybody speak like this. We cannot, we cannot jump on board with this idea of eliminating Jesus. We won't do it. Now look at the Pharisees' response. Again, I, like I said, they're building a bad bandwagon here. A belief bandwagon based on what? Based on appeals to majority, based on emotion, based on misinformation. They're simply going to assert themselves. They're not going to make an argument. They're going to be rational with these guys. They're just going to say, no, you believe what we believe simply because we believe it. Right? Look at their response to this crowd, to their, sorry, this, their response to these officers. Verse 47. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Now look at that question. What is that? Again, it's an appeal to majority opinion. Right? Well, none of us believed. Why should you believe? We don't believe why should you believe? None of us have done this. Now, imagine if we operated like that. Uh, imagine if we kind of accepted that as a, as a rational argument, right? An appeal to a majority opinion. Now, that's the easier thing to believe what makes you fit in. It's the easier thing to kind of jump on the idea of whatever is popular, right? It was easier for me to, to jump in and say, I'm rooting for the Seattle Seahawks when they're the popular choice to win the Super Bowl. It's easy to do that. It's easy to feel like, hey, I'm on the winning side. I'm on the winning team. This is, this is kind of where everybody is going. It's easy to make the choice to fit in, but it's not the right way to handle truth, if we believed that that kind of argumentation was great, then we would still believe that the earth is the center of our solar system instead of the sun. But how many things do you think we wouldn't believe if we weren't willing to go against the trend? I mean, many of our knowledge now was contrary to what was known before. I mean, that's just a small example of our understanding of the solar system, but we could go through many different facts where popular opinion was, was pulling in one direction, but then we realized, no, that wasn't right. If we accept the idea of, well, let's just count hands, let's just raise hands, let's just vote on truth, 
There are many things we would never learn. This is a terrible way to set up our belief system. Yet this is exactly what these men are doing. But apparently these Pharisees feel like, well, this isn't going to work on these guys. Right? If it appealed to a majority, believe what we believe simply because we believe it. If that kind of posture isn't working, what do they resort to? Insult. Right? Maybe you've felt this way before. Maybe you've done this or this has been done to you. You're in a disagreement. You say, well, that's foolish. Nobody believes in that. That doesn't work. So you just decide to call them names. Or somebody decides to call you a name. Look, this is exactly what these guys are doing. They're building a belief bandwagon. And it's really, really bad. Look at what they say. Verse 48. Again, we'll read verse 48. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What are they doing? Again, there's no argument. There's no evidence. There's no logic. There's just emotion. There's name-calling. Appeal to a majority, and now let's insult them. It says here, are, are you persuaded by this crowd? This crowd that believed he was the prophet and the Christ. Those kind of two groups that we mentioned at the very beginning. Oh, you just believe these guys? And he says, they don't even know the law. Now, this idea of crowd here is really a derogatory term. It means the, the people of the land. It's, it's a very much like an insult. And what else do they say of these people? This crowd that doesn't know the law. What are they talking about there? That phrase, they don't know the law. Therefore, they're accursed. Now, what it doesn't mean is this. Yes, this group does know the law. They do know the Old Testament. We see the crowd, or many in the crowd, they know the scriptures well enough to know where the Messiah would be born. They know well enough the scriptures to know that the Messiah will come from the family tree of David. We saw that in verse 42. So clearly they know the scriptures. So what are these guys talking about? What they're saying is they don't know the law like us. We know the law very well. We are schooled in the law. These Pharisees found 613 different commands in the Old Testament. 613, 613 commands that they religiously, meticulously tried to keep in order to earn their salvation. 613 commands so they could merit favor with God. And on top of that, what did they do? On top of that, they added their oral traditions, the teachings of past rabbis and present rabbis, and they piled that on on top of 613 commands, which honestly, think about it. If you have 613 commands, who in the world is going to say, hey, we need more? These guys say, we need more. So they would pile on top of those commands already even more commands. So it's not surprising that these people just said, no way. Like, that's a burden I cannot bear. I can't even memorize over 600 commands. And now you want me to take on even more? This is what the Pharisees are saying. They're saying, you don't know the law like we know the law. We know all the laws. And we know the laws on top of those laws. You can't match our theological prowess. Right? You can't match our academic integrity. You can't beat us on the study of Scripture. So therefore... You're accursed. 
That's a term from the book of Deuteronomy. That term comes from the teaching of Moses. Moses to write that those who don't follow the law, the commands of God, are cursed. So they're pronouncing judgment on this crowd. Do they give any reason for their judgment? No. They simply assume it. The reason you're a curse is because you disagree with me. What a bad, bad bandwagon. Now, a couple ironic things are going to happen in the turn at the very end of our passage here. Right? Remember their first kind of argument, their appeal to the majority. Go back to verse 47. It says, The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Verse 48. Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Now, what's hilarious is the next verse we go to in verse 50, one of their own group will actually defend Jesus. So apparently, somebody does believe. It's really ironic, I think kind of funny, how how John kind of puts this together because they just finished the sentence, hey, none of us believe, and then one of them will stand up and say, well, wait a second, what about this Jesus guy? So even their statement there, their appeal to the majority is an exaggeration. We see this elsewhere in John chapter 12, that there were other people of them who actually did believe. In John chapter 12, verse 42, it says this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So clearly, some do believe. Some of these authorities do believe But the ones that do believe are too afraid to confess it. Again, these guys are building off of bad information, making exaggeration, making exaggerative claims, and they're appealing to emotion, and they're just just leaning on popular uh, opinion, appeal to the majority. Their bandwagon is not built very well. When Nicodemus speaks up. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, who is this guy? Who is Nicodemus? Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of the Gospel of John, as we've studied through it, you know this name already. In fact, it's hinted at here that we've seen this guy before. The beginning of verse 50 says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before. So Jesus has actually already met with Nicodemus. We saw this in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, it says, Nicodemus came by night, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're from God, because nobody could do the things that you're doing, Jesus, and not be from God. So Nicodemus is a very curious religious authority. He's got to figure out who this Jesus is. And so he begins to investigate. Now, I said in John chapter 3, as we were studying that, that I didn't think Nicodemus had come to a point probably of belief. He was still kind of working and navigating through that just by the tone of what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Because Jesus, honestly, in John chapter 3, is very disappointed with some of the conclusions that Nicodemus comes to. I do think it's a teaching moment that, that, that Nicodemus is being stretched here. But now he shows up again in John chapter 7, and he's kind of giving a defense for Jesus. So again, I feel like this is maybe a step toward belief. We'll see later in John's gospel, when we get there in John chapter 19, we see Nicodemus again. 
And this time Nicodemus is with Joseph of Arimathea and he helps bury the body of Jesus. I think at that point what we're seeing is that, that, that Nicodemus has moved from kind of curious to committed. I think it's fair for us to assume because he's involving himself with the death of at that time was a criminal. He's involving himself. He's taking a lot, a lot of risk being involved in the burial of Jesus. He's showing some attachment to Jesus. So I think he's made that move. And right here, I think, is another example of his step toward following Jesus. And what does Nick do? Look what Nicodemus does. Again, I think the irony here is just so thick. I love how John presents it. Look at Nicodemus's point. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone before and who was one of them, said, Does our law... Interesting. He references the law. Well, the law was just referenced by who? The Pharisees. The Pharisees said, This crowd here, they don't even know the law. They're accursed. And what does Nick do? He takes the same accusation and puts it to them. He says, Doesn't our law judge, or does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? What does Nicodemus say? Hey, how about due process here? How about they're innocent until proven guilty? We know that Moses gave us clear instructions in the book of Deuteronomy that the way we judge was to be just, to not be irrational, to not be emotional, to not be based off of misinformation, but was actually to to gather information, to gather witnesses, to have evidence for it to be conclusive, and then for a judgment to be made and punishment to be handed out. And Nicodemus says, you just accused the crowd of not knowing the law. You don't know the law. You're not obeying it. Now, I think what Nicodemus has done here, again, I think he's taking a kind of cautious position But I think what he's done here is he's maybe shown a little bit of his cards. He's shown that he cares about Jesus. Now, his kind of position was to attack a weakness in their their argument, their legal argument. But I think the Pharisees see a little bit more here. Now, again, look what they do. They're building a bandwagon based off emotion, not evidence. It's more about fitting in than finding the truth. It's about doing what's popular and not what's doing what's right. So what do they resort to? They don't have evidence at their disposal. So they use insults. They did this with the officers, and they do this with Nicodemus. Verse 52, and they replied, are you from Galilee too? They insult him. Apparently, Being from Galilee, it was a town that was not looked highly upon. And so they say, well, are you from there too? Are you with this man? Is this where your allegiance lies? You're from this little city? They insult him, and then they show that their position is based off of misinformation. Look at this, because it's exactly what the crowd said in the very beginning. Verse 52, again it says, they replied, are you from Galilee? Listen to this. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. We've heard this before. This is exactly the same thing 
that the third group said in the very beginning of our passage. The ones that were in in an emotional frenzy and wanted to arrest Jesus. They said, no, this can't be the Christ because he's from Galilee. Again, not knowing that Jesus was not born in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem and he was of the lineage of David. So their position was based off of misinformation, not a very well-built bandwagon. And these guys reveal themselves to have the same misinformation. They say, no, no prophet. See, no prophet arises from Galilee. I think, honestly, that emotion has taken them over. And why is that? Well, the way they say it, it says, see, that no prophet. They didn't say the prophet. Now, that might be what they're thinking of. But that's not what we have right here. It says that no prophet comes from Galilee. That is clearly wrong. I mean, these guys are scholars in the Old Testament. Well, there's two prophets that clearly came from Galilee. Nahum, the prophet Nahum came from Galilee. The prophet Jonah came from Galilee. And there are other prophets as well. So these guys are kind of showing that their emotion has got the best of them. And they have not waited for kind of a a better judgment to make some more rational statements. They're just kind of flying off the handle there. So they say something that's not true. And even if it were true, it doesn't apply to Jesus. Because Jesus is not from Galilee. Belief bandwagons are bad. These guys miss it. They miss it. They miss it. They want to be popular. They want to hold on to their authority. And Jesus is a challenge to that authority. And they don't seek to investigate. They don't seek to explore. They want to keep their authority. And anybody who's going to pull it away, they're going to say, no, 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 no. Don't believe that because we don't believe it. And if you believe it, then you're lower than us. Again, we see how this kind of posturing is just irrational. It's not based off of evidence. It's just incredibly emotional. And just like a sports bandwagon won't last, so too this won't last either. It's incredibly shaky and uneasy ground to lay any of your loyalty on, especially your religious loyalty. So let's just apply this to ourselves. What does this mean for us? If belief bandwagons are bad, yes, we're all kind of annoyed by the sports bandwagon fans. But what about the, the religious bandwagon? Right, we've seen that it's incredibly dangerous to make our religious choices based off of that kind of bandwagon appeal. So as followers of Jesus Christ, I think we have a very valuable lesson that we can learn, and that is this. Don't build a bandwagon. Don't build a bandwagon. As followers of Christ, we want our friends and we want our family members to know Jesus. We want them to come to follow Jesus. But we have to do it in the right way. We can't tell our friends and family members, believe what we believe, well, simply because we believe it. And surely we cannot make them feel that that following Jesus is just an easier way for them to fit in with us. And if they don't follow him, then they won't fit in with us. We can't make our appeal uh, appeal one of, of popularity or of friendship. We can't do it that way. 
We must respect their decision. We must respect their their journey. We must respect their pace. We must respect their destination if it's different than ours. And they come to believe something different than what we believe. We have to be okay with that. Building a bandwagon is bad. Now, this is a really hard lesson to learn when we apply it to our families. When we apply it to the belief of our children. I would say in my experience, the greatest fear of a Christian parent is that their children won't believe like they believe. And if I'm honest as a parent, I would tell you that that is probably my greatest worry. Is that my kids won't share the belief that I have. They won't follow Jesus like my wife and I do. That scares me. And we want our kids to believe. But we can't do it in in a bandwagon type way. Telling them to believe what we believe simply because we believe it. And we can't treat them any less if they don't believe what we believe. We need to give them the space to be curious, the space to ask questions, the space to challenge our belief. You see, because if we don't, if we build a belief bandwagon, then that kind of fanship will only last as long as they have a concern to agree with dad. But what happens when they grow up? And, with, and, and when agreeing with dad is not their highest priority, I think here's what we find. Is that their loyalty to Jesus was more of a sign that they were a fan of dad. But when being a fan of dad is no longer the top priority, they're not going to follow Jesus anymore. Because the reason they spoke about Jesus in the way that you wanted them to is because they felt they fit in more with you. It's what you wanted to hear. It's what I want to hear. But we have to give our kids a belief that will last longer than our fanship or their fanship of us. That will last longer than them admiring being close to us because we share the same thing. We have to show them that they don't have to agree with us for us to love them. But we can release them to be curious, release them to challenge us. I encourage you, I encourage you, and and, and I speak this truth to myself. I have four wonderful, beautiful little kids that I love dearly. And I, I follow Jesus because I am confident that his teachings are true, but they have to come to that decision on their own. And believing in Jesus is because because that's what daddy wants you to do is not a good enough reason. And it won't last. My encouragement to you as a Christian parent is to let them ask questions. See that that wonderful question, why, that they ask all the time, It's not defiance. It should not be received as as annoyance. It's a gift. It's a gift. Treat it as a gift. 
When they say, well, why? That doesn't make sense. Well, well why, how does that work? Why should I believe in this book? Why do you think it's reliable? Why Jesus instead of all these other religions? Why would God not show himself to, to every people and just make them believe? If God's real, why not just paint it on the sky? These why questions are gifts. Gifts that we cannot let spoil. These are moments we can seize as Christian parents and say, let me show you the answer to that why question. Capture those moments and give them a faith that will outlast their fanship of you. Now, maybe you're watching this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're watching this because a friend invited you to. I think there's a great lesson for you to learn from this passage as well. And that's this. Don't jump on a bandwagon. One of the worst reasons to become a Christian is because your friend's a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. Your friend, your friend that invited you to watch this, your friend would love to see you become a Christian. They would love to share in that kind of excitement with you. They'd love to share in that journey with you. They really would. But let me reassure you that your friend that invited you to watch this does not believe that your friendship is based on 100% agreement. They don't want you to believe what they believe simply because they believe it. They want you to own it for yourself. So I would encourage you, investigate Jesus and give your friend a wonderful gift. And that's this. Ask them why. Ask them why. Say, why? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why have you dedicated your whole life to following him? Trust me, that conversation is a conversation that your friend is eager to have with you. And I think you'll be impressed by the answer they give to that question. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, that you for the love that you've showered upon us in Jesus Christ. Christ, you've given us a wonderful gift. You've given us the forgiveness of sins because of your death and resurrection. You took the penalty for our sin. You bore that penalty on the cross. And then you rose again, and now you offer us the free gift of forgiveness. You offer us a life of being transformed by your Spirit. Oh, Father, we thank you for these wonderful gifts. And Father, I pray, I pray, Father, that you would help us. Help us to be wise in how we speak to our friends and family members. That we would not put any pressure on them, any emotional pressure on them, any relational pressure on them to believe what we believe. But I pray, Father, that we would do the, the right things, that we would, we would show them the evidence, the things that convinced us to follow Jesus. I pray that we would give those things and, and be patient with our friends and family members. We would respect their pace. We would respect however long it takes for them to answer life's most important questions. And Father, I pray that you would help us Maybe when the time comes, when they answer those questions differently than we do, that's okay. That's okay. We can disagree. 
and still love each other. But I pray, Father, that we would express great charity with those who are curious about you. I pray our friends would feel incredible hospitality to their curiosity. That we wouldn't feel like we, we are forcing them to do something. And Father, for all those who, who are friends that, that were invited to watch this, oh, I pray for them too. I pray for their searching to be fruitful. I know, Father, you are not hiding from them, but you are seeking them out. And I pray that you would show yourself to them. And I pray, Father, that you'd give them the courage to ask that question of their friend. Why do you believe? Father, let us not build bandwagons. Let us share our faith in a right way. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us on our online services. We look forward to seeing you again next week.